Thank you. Um, hey, everyone. I'm Janet B. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And we tonight we are on chapter three in the big book, more about alcoholism. So more that presupposes that there was already some discussion about alcoholism or for us compulsive eating. And there was there are a couple chapters where they really talked about how we are just different from others. So page 30, they start, and they're telling us more about how we're different. It says, no per most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics or real compulsive eaters. We all want to be a little different, right? I'm fatter, I'm thinner, I'm smarter, I'm not as smart. I've been doing this too long. I haven't been binging you know, long at all. We all have something that makes us different, but they're saying no. Here's what characterizes us. Countless vain attempts to prove we could eat like other people. You know, it's like this time I will be able to eat one, fill in the blank and get away with it. And it says that's what characterizes us. And it says the idea that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his eating is the great obsession of every abnormal eater. So I think that's interesting, right? I would have thought the great obsession, they would say is alcohol or for us food, but they say, no, that is not the great obsession. The great obsession is that one day I'll be able to eat the way I want and get away with it. Meaning one day I'll be able to eat either one, cupcake or something like that, or have one good all out binge like high school girls do when their boyfriends break up with them and then be able to get back to normal tomorrow. And they say that's an obsession and that illusion, right? An illusion, an insane thought is so strong. We pursue it often to the gates of insanity or death. So then they say, okay, guys, that, so that's how our minds work. But we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves we were alcoholics or compulsive eaters. This is the first step in recovery. Why? Why is that the first step, right? If I have pneumonia, I don't have to concede I have pneumonia. My husband could stick penicil liquid penicillin, I guess, in my water and I would get better. But this disease requires that we admit that we have it. Why? Well, last week we talked about what the solution is, right? Page 25, the grace of God, God's unmerited favor. But how, how does that work? Does God just roll a dice? And if he, you know, if he gets snake eyes, woohoo, Janet gets recovered. Uh-uh. It says, no, there is a solution. And here's what's required. This is basically how we're telling God we need him. Self-searching, leveling of our pride, confession of shortcomings, plus we'll throw in rigorous honesty, a life of unselfish self-sacrifice. Who is going to do that unless he or she feels they have to? That I have an illness that's kicking my butt and if I don't do something about it, I'm sunk. So it says the delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. Okay, so the first step in recovery, they say, is smashing that delusion. But I will say if we stop there, 
it's not enough. Just like if someone admits she has cancer and she's powerless over and it makes her life unmanageable, no one would say, great, now that you've admitted you're powerless over your cancer cells, now make your cancer cells stop multiplying and get healed. We would never do that. And yet sometimes we think that here. So we wanna be careful. A first step alone gives us the willingness to do the work, but a first step without following it up with, with the rest of the steps is just like acknowledging something. Okay, I acknowledge I'm sick. No, it doesn't work that way. God is gracious, but God is not a fairy godmother and doesn't just sit there and, you know, bibbity bobbity boo and grant us recovery by doing nothing. But the first step we have to do is admit we have this and say that and see that no real alcoholic or compulsive eater ever recovers control. Well, how do we smash the delusion that we're like other people? What if we're not quite there yet? That's why in this chapter, they tell stories about four or five different people who had to have their delusions smashed. And also when we go as a recovered person and talk to someone new, what we always wanna share is how we used to binge and how we don't and how it got smashed in us. So that again, we'll whet their appetite. So they'll say, I want this. So they say, okay, all of us felt we were regaining control, but these brief intervals were always 100% of the time followed by still less control. And we are convinced that alcoholics, compulsive eaters of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. So two things, it's progressive, which means it continues to get worse. But good news, Recovery is also progressive, right? On page eight, Bill Wilson, one of the founders of this program says, when he started to work this program, he said, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. So recovery can be progressive too. But this illness is progressive, unfortunately. We find that untreated, the binges get closer together and involve more and more food. It's a progressive illness. And it's an illness, which means it has definite symptoms and it has a fixed treatment. It's not a bad habit, like I don't like to clean my house. That's a bad habit. But, um, but this is an illness, right? Without intervention, it's just going to get worse. And it goes on and says like, we're like men who've lost their legs. They never grow new ones. There's no treatment that seems to make us like other men, right? That we can eat like normal people, that we can be like my daughter who could, you know, just go and have poor self, you know, scoop out a scoop of ice cream and not even finish it. That will never be us. And it says we've tried every imaginable remedy. And sometimes there was brief recovery, but there was always a worse relapse. I mean, because guys, they say, this is a spiritual problem. We're told in chapter five, once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So by trying to manage and control it, 
were people who are like taking Tylenol for a brain tumor. It won't work. So it says all the things that we try and that, you know, drinking only on weekends, swearing it off with or without a solemn oath, exercising, reading spiritual books, and it doesn't work. And then they talk about the different type of people. And the first example, page 32, they talk about the man of 30. And this guy um, was pretty smart. He said, if I have one drink, I can't stop. So I won't have one drink. So he set it aside for 25 years, didn't have a drink. And then he said, okay, I haven't had a drink in 25 years. I should be able to drink like a normal person now. And what happened? He saw he couldn't drink like a normal person. So he said, okay, I won't drink at all. And he couldn't stop drinking even when he said, I won't have one. And he died within four years. Well, what was he doing? What was his problem? He thought that time would make a difference. But think about it. If I go to the beach and I get a really bad sunburn because I don't put sunscreen on and I don't go to the beach again for 25 years and 25 years from then I go to the beach and I don't put sunscreen on, what's going to happen? I'm going to get a sunburn because there are certain things that don't get better, that don't change just because a lot of time passes. And that's sunburns and addictions. Time does not heal all things. So here he was, he thought time would do it and time didn't do it. And then he said, I'll try to regulate it. Well, that's like us saying, I'll buy a box of cookies and I'll have two. And here's why it doesn't work. We just talked about this, but there's five new people. So we're going to talk about it again. Um, here's why I can know that I have to put on my sunscreen when I go outside, but I don't know that if I have two cookies, I'm not going to be able to stop. So the book talks about um, how our memory is generally our defense, but it doesn't work with respect to food. So if we think about it, that here's our memory and here's our conscious mind, and there's a bridge between the two. And stored in my memory are all the consequences. So for me, for example, um, I have a really bad cat allergy. So stored in my memory are all these data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if someone invites me to their house or my kids say, let's go to a pet store, my memory will very quickly grab the data points that say, danger, stop. You know, if you go near a cat, you're not going to be able to breathe. And my memory generates a little thought that runs across the bridge to say, don't, you can't. Cats will give you an asthma attack. Don't do it. So you'd think, um, and let's go back, I guess, to the beach. Let's go back to the beach and sunscreen. Um, get a sunburn once, twice more than twice because I grew up in Miami, lots of sunburns. So stored in my memory are all these data points of sunburns because I didn't wanna put on sunscreen. So there I am about to go outside my swimming pool on a 95 degree day, don't wanna put on sunscreen, but my memory grabs the little data points that say sunburns burn you, generates a little thought to run across the bridge, say stop, this is dangerous, you will get a sunburn. It will cause wrinkles. It will be painful. You won't like it. Don't do it. So I say, okay. And I put on the sunscreen. 
But when it came to food, let's say that I, there's a certain brand of cookies I like to binge on. Well, I didn't like to binge on. I would like to go and have one or two. But stored in my memory are all these data points of Janet saying she's going to buy a box of cookies, just have one or two and put them away. But it doesn't work. And she ends up eating the whole box. So there I go about to go to the store, buy my cookies to have my one or two. And my memory does its job. It scans the data points, generates a little thought to run across the bridge and say, stop danger. You're not going to be able to stop at one or two. You're going to eat the whole box. You're going to hate yourself. You're going to gain weight. Don't do it. Except unlike with sunburns and cats, when it came to food, the bridge was broken. There was no connection between my memory and my conscious mind. I couldn't keep the memory green. That's a saying people say it's not in the big book. I couldn't just tell myself to stay away from certain trigger foods. I had no power because I had no memory to protect me. Think about it. That's why don't we let our little kids play outside in, you know, where there's traffic because they don't have the memory yet. They haven't learned that if they cross the street and a car comes, they're roadkill. So we don't let them play outside by themselves. They haven't developed that memory yet. So here's this guy, or this poor man of 30, who's now 55. He tried to regulate his drinking. I'll just have one drink. And it's like he has some kind of amnesia because the memory of the hundred times he said, I'll have one drink and stop, but he ended up getting drunk, can't get across, can't get across. And then later he even tries and says, okay, I won't drink at all. But inevitably there's a day where it's like, yeah, but today I can have just one. And his memory doesn't protect him and he's dead in four years. So it says again, page 33, time doesn't do it. There is no such thing as the pillow cure, which I used to think. I'll put my head on a pillow for seven hours and I'll wake up and I'll have the willpower that I never had before. There's no such thing as a magic pillow. And again, if we're saying I'll binge today, but I'll start tomorrow, our memory is keeping from us the fact that we could never binge today and start tomorrow. We don't have the power to do it. So it says, if we really wanna stop, there must be no reservation of any kind, no lurking notion that one day I'll be immune, that one day I'll be able to eat like normal people. Now, what happens sometimes is that a person will do that, really take a first step and say, okay, I know I can't, eat like normal people. But then a couple months later, it's there and they think maybe I can have one. What happens? Well, the book is clear that we have a reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. So I may have a first step today, realizing that I can't have one, that one's gonna turn into 20 plus. But if I don't do the work, to either, if I'm new, to go through the steps quickly but thoroughly, or if I'm not new, to keep working 10, 11, and 12 vigorously, then um, I'm gonna have, I guess, like a kind of a mental relapse. I'm gonna forget. 
if I have a spiritual relapse because I stopped doing this work, the next thing that happens is I have a mental relapse. And then after that, of course, comes the food relapse. So we need to, once we take a first step, we need to just forge ahead and do this work quickly. And then once we were through the steps, through the first nine steps, we live the rest of our lives in 10, 11, and 12, or we will go backwards. So I'm gonna flip on over to page 34 and they're saying, okay, if you can't drink moderately, how do we stop altogether? And it says, we are assuming of course, that the reader desires to stop. This book isn't written for people who don't have a desire to stop. If someone says, yeah, I'm binging and I'm overweight or underweight or whatever, but I don't care. This book is not for them. Okay. This book is not for the person who wants to go to her high school reunion, 10 pounds lighter to make the boy who dumped her in 11th grade jealous. It's not, it's for someone who wants to stop for good. Um, and it says, whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he's already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. I mean, diseases have progressions, right? Like early stage diabetics might be able to reverse it with diet and exercise. Um, but once it gets later and later on, it's harder to do that. And then they may need some intervention. Um, maybe I'm not a doctor. That's just the best example I could think of off the cuff. Um, so, but they're saying that if we've really crossed the line where we can't stop on our own willpower, then we need a spiritual solution. They say it has nothing to do with character. It has nothing to do with how much we desire or need to stop, right? We may need to stop for health reasons. But I'll tell you, I met someone once she was diabetic. Her doctor said she had to stop for health reasons. When I met her, she had a seeing eye dog because she was blind and she was waiting for a kidney transplant. She was on dialysis. She had a great necessity and was unable to stop. And it says, this is the baffling feature of this illness, this utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. Guys, it's not a question of necessity or wish. It's a question of lack of power. And Melissa will talk all about that next week when she does the chapter, We Agnostics. So top of page 35, it says, okay, how are we gonna help people really smash that delusion that they're like others? And it says, okay, we're gonna talk about the mental state that comes before the relapse because that's the crux of the problem. Remember the order, spiritual relapse, and that could come. How do we go into spiritual relapse? We start being dishonest. We wallow in resentment. We don't help other people. That's how we get spiritual relapse. Then we get the mental and emotional relapse, and then we end up picking up. And they say, okay, we'll give you a couple examples. Um, because if we can recognize it, if we can say, oh, my thinking is wrong, um, then we can go back and see what the spiritual problem is and fix it. Um, but hopefully we catch it at the spiritual level, but you know, we don't always. So second guy, you know, we had our man of 30 and now we have Jim. So Jim got better. Um, he, he drank, 
then he went to an asylum. He came out and he got in touch with some people who were working this program and he made a beginning. He went through the steps, but it looks like um, he was really focused on his career, his life. It doesn't talk about him um, working with others. In fact, it says he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And page 14 and 15, it tells us how we enlarge our spiritual life. It says, if an alcoholic fails to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he would surely drink again. So here's Jim, did some stuff, but he's not helping others. And he keeps getting drunk. What did they do? I think this is important. Did they say, Jim, you got drunk, see ya. Go, go find another sponsor, go do something else. You know, I'm done. I gave you, you know, eight hours of my time. I'm done. They didn't. It says we worked with him reviewing carefully what had happened. They put the time in. And I think that if a person is um, really trying and just has blind spots and hasn't got it yet, or they're doing it 90%, we might want to point out that, you know, you can't really do it 90%. You have to do 100%. And we might want to help them see how they ended up in relapse. Um, I did a podcast on this once, Pitfalls That Lead to Relapse. So if someone wants to put that in the chat, if you all want to look at that, listen to that. Um, so it says he didn't enlarge his spiritual life. He relapsed. And he said, okay, I got to get my life together. So he said, I have to, because if I don't, I'll lose my family who I love. But what we know is that fear doesn't do it. Fear can't keep anyone abstinent long-term because fear isn't from God. Fear is, if anything, from the other team and fear doesn't have the power to keep us abstinent. So Jim got drunk again. What happened? So he said, well, I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman at a company I once owned. And I had a few words with the boss, read resentment. And the book says resentment is the number one offender. So here he is in resentment. Then this is the smart thing Jim does. I say with dripping sarcasm, when he's in resentment, he says, I'm gonna drive out to the country because then I may see someone who wants to buy a car and oh yeah, I'm going to stop at this place to get a sandwich where they happen to serve alcohol. Okay, now he'd been there before, but he wasn't in a good spiritual state right now. And at the end of chapter seven, it says, when we go someplace, we should always check our motives and make sure they're good. I mean, really, he's driving out to the country to find someone to buy a car um, and thinking, oh, maybe at this roadside place, I'll find someone else to buy a car. So already, you know, things don't seem quite right for our buddy, Jim. So he has a sandwich, glass of milk, and then he decides to have another sandwich, another glass of milk, and here's what he says. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind, if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. There's that bridge, right? He, he forgot if I have, any whiskey, I won't be able to stop. He's got a broken bridge. 
this program teaches, that bridge can never be fixed, by the way. What this program teaches us is how to build another bridge, and that's a bridge to God, where God can protect us. But um, one of the conditions, or I guess one of the raw materials for building that bridge, um, once we go through the steps, is strenuous work with other addicts. If we don't, that bridge crumbles, and we have no bridge to our memory, so we find ourselves like poor Jim, he's in trouble. Um, the thought came to mind when we know that thought wasn't from God because um, Bill Wilson, when he was in the hospital, had a thought come to mind and it was, maybe I can go help other alcoholics and they in turn could help others. So here he gets a thought and he vaguely senses he's not being any too smart. And I can just picture like the, the thought that says, Bill, you can't, or Jim, one shot of whiskey will turn into um, 10 shots of whiskey. You'll get drunk, you'll lose your family, don't do it. And that, that's trying to shout across to his conscious mind, but because there's no bridge, it's just like vague, like a vague echo where he can't really make out the words. And what happened? He ended up in the asylum again. He had every reason to not drink, but he pushed it aside in favor of the foolish idea, I can have whiskey if I mix it with milk. Page 37, it says, yeah, whatever the definition of insanity really is, this is what we call it, a lack of proportion, a lack of the ability to think straight. A lack of proportion, a lack of the ability to think straight. And they say, okay, this may sound extreme what Jim did, but they're saying like, come on guys, 100% of us have done things like that. Yeah, we may have thought a little bit more about the consequences, but inevitably we couldn't do it. And the next day we would ask ourselves sincerely, how did this happen? Because we sincerely wanted to stop. Again, we had the desire, we didn't have the power. And they say, okay, then someone will say, yeah, but sometimes we go out deliberately to get drunk or to binge, feeling we're justified by nervousness, right? That's control, things aren't going our way, anger, resentment, worry, just fear, depression, sadness. And we are people who don't like to be sad and don't accept it. Sometimes things are just sad, jealousy, um, and they say, but even here, they, what's going on? We think, okay, I'm really mad or I'm really you know, nervous. So I'll just binge tonight because there's a thought there that I'll be able to start tomorrow. There's still the delusion of control. And they're saying, no, we are people who don't have control. And they compare us to a guy, sorry, to a guy who loves to jaywalk. And he goes out and he jaywalks and he gets hit by a car and he goes out again and he gets hit again and his arms are broken and his wife divorces him and he's shut up in a mental institution. Um, but he comes out and races in front of a fire truck and they say, ha ha, you may be laughing, but yeah, if we substitute alcoholism or compulsive eating for jaywalking, isn't that us? You know, we, we are the same. Um, 
And they say, okay, so some of you are thinking, yeah, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. Now that we know we have a broken bridge, we can go out and never eat compulsively again. And they say, well, unfortunately, that may be true for people who haven't crossed the line yet. And P.S., we never know where the line is. And I would say we, I've never met anyone who says, I think I'll go to OA and stop binging before they cross the line, unfortunately. So we are people who cross the line. Um, no, I take that back, actually. There may be people in OA who are just problem eaters and they haven't crossed the line yet. And those are the people who can get better just by like calling in their food and doing assignments and being accountable and, you know, the hugs and the love and the accountability um, that may work for them. And I saw a lot of those people my first few years in OA and they were getting better and I wasn't because I had crossed the line and they hadn't. Um, so they say, if you've crossed the line, you will be absolutely unable to stop drinking or binging on the basis of self-knowledge, right? Someone with cancer can't make their cancer cells stop multiplying just because they know they have cancer. And they give us another example, Fred. Page 39, we meet Fred. He's an accountant, right? A straight-laced, upstanding guy. He's got a home. He's married. He's a father of you know, good kids. He has a good personality, a successful businessman. The only problem is Fred can't stop drinking. So he ended up in the hospital from his drinking, page 40. And some of the early members of AA went to see him. And Fred said he was interested and conceded he had some of the symptoms, but he was a long way from admitting he could do nothing about it himself. He thought that this humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he now had, would keep him sober the rest of his life. But remember guys, we can't access those humiliating experiences. We can't access the knowledge that I thought I would have one or two, but I ended up eating the whole box, carton, gallon. We can't access it. So Fred leaves the hospital. He thinks I've got great judgment, I'll be fine. And then he was back in the hospital again. And he said, you know, here's my problem. I liked learning about the insanity, but I was confident it couldn't happen to me after what I learned. I thought I wasn't as advanced as most of you, right? I have it, but I don't have it as badly as you guys do. And he said, and this is how he thought he was different because I've usually been successful in solving my other personal problems. Not like you losers who can't solve any problems, he's thinking. He said, I can solve my problems. He said, just willpower and staying on guard. And he said, for a while, he was fine. He went to Washington to present some accounting evidence. I mean, this doesn't sound like a big whoopee party going on there, presenting accounting evidence to a government bureau. And he said, everything was fine. Um, the presentation went well business was good. See, so sometimes it's not that we drink because life is terrible and we want to blot it out. If we've crossed the line, we eat compulsively because the illness says 
you're going to eat compulsively and there's nothing you can do about it. So here he is, he finishes his business, he goes to hotels, getting ready for dinner. He's ready to go into the dining room. And the thought came to mind, there's those thoughts again, that it would be nice to have a couple of drinks with dinner. That's it, nothing more. Um, again, see the thoughts that come. If we're not connected with God and getting our intuitive thoughts from God, um, we're open to getting thoughts from the other team. I mean, this thought didn't come from Fred. So we say it came from the illness, right? This illness is described as cunning, baffling, and powerful. So here he is, he goes, he orders a cocktail, then he orders another cocktail. And then before you know it, um, he doesn't even make his way home. He just gets a taxi driver to drive him around drinking for a few days. And then he said, what happened? After he came to his senses, he immediately started thinking carefully over what it was. He said, I hadn't thought of the consequences at all. Remember Bill Wilson in the chapter of Vision for You. Remember, Bill was spiritually fit at this point. His business had not gone well. Um, he was discredited in a strange place, alone, almost broke, but he was working with others. He was fired up about working with others. So when he thought, hmm, there's, there's the dining room with everyone drinking and having fun. If I don't go there, I'm gonna have a lonely weekend. But to Bill, the thought came, he could help other alcoholics. And God provided a way for him to meet Dr. Bob and thank God, because that's how this program was born and how we all got here. But not our friend Fred. He just said, I couldn't even think about the consequences. And he remembered how his alcoholic friends had prophesied if he had an alcoholic mind, so if we have compulsive eating minds, the time and place will come and we will eat compulsively again. And they said, yeah, you may have a defense, but your defense will give way before an insanely trivial reason for having a drink, having a compulsive bite. And he said he knew from that moment he had an alcoholic mind and willpower and self-knowledge wouldn't help. So again, just because we see we have a compulsive eating mind, willpower and self-knowledge alone doesn't help. That doesn't give us the power to stick to a food plan long-term. So only after he admitted defeat, after he took a first step, did a couple of the guys from AA come and then tell, a, tell him the spiritual answer and the program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. A hundred people all did the same thing and they all got better. But only after he admitted defeat, the spiritual answer, surrender our lives to God, meaning we don't say, what do I feel like doing? We try and live our lives, all of us imperfectly, but our, um, I guess our mission statement is we will live our lives based on what we think God would have us do. And we'll just trust him with the outcome and the program of action. We start living honestly, helping others, clearing away the wreckage of our past. 
And he says, okay, I'd been a nominal churchman. I hadn't been a religious person. So it doesn't matter, religious, not religious. He says, but these programs made sense. It was entirely sensible, but drastic. I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window. Conceptions like, I need to look out for number one, meaning myself first. Anything I need to do in order to get ahead is okay. All those conceptions had to go out the window. And he says, not easy, but what a beautiful line comes up. But the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, as in fact, it proved to be. I have a note in the side of my book, willingness allows grace to enter. He was willing to do the work and God gave him the grace, the unmerited favor. And then he says, just as important was the discovery spiritual principles would solve all my problems. Guys, this isn't just a program for our food problem. This is the program that can help us with all our problems. And he says, top of page 43, I've been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying, so more joyful, and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. Look at the change in Fred. Now he cares about being useful. He's been changed. He wants to be useful now. And he says, my old manner of life wasn't a bad one. Mine was a bad one. His wasn't so bad. It doesn't matter. And we all say, I wouldn't exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I wouldn't go back to it even if I could. We can't go back to the way things were. We either keep moving toward God or we actually are moving toward way worse than we ever were before. So and then it concludes by saying doctors, psychiatrists agree that for the people who've crossed the line, we are 100% hopeless apart from divine help. And this is doctors saying for most cases, there is virtually no other solution than the spiritual one. And then the last paragraph, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. Again, so for us as compulsive eaters, we have no mental defense against the first compulsive bite. We can't rely on our memories, on our ability to think it through, except in a few rare cases neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. So forget about the group as a higher power. The book says, no, no other human being can do it. What if everyone in the group goes out and binges? We can all be a support for each other, definitely, but I can't make anyone change internally and no one could have made me change internally. His defense must come from a higher power, capital H, capital P, meaning God. So we can't do it. No other person can help us, but God can and God will. And next week we get to hear all about that. So we will close with that for now. Thanks.